establishing the foundation for the following sections, as we will tonight. And so, Hebrews chapter 7, if you need an outline, Brother Dave Carter's going to head down the middle aisle here. You get his attention. Be glad to get you one. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to have one and follow along with us. That would be wonderful. Hebrews chapter 7. And if you need one, get Brother Dave's attention, if you will. Let's quickly talk about a review, and uh, last time we'll do any of this review for this section, so let's just kind of remind ourselves where we're at and how we got here. We started being reintroduced to Melchizedek, as we talked about, for the purposes of, as the end of chapter 6, verse 20, it alludes to that Christ is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So what about that order of Melchizedek, that priesthood? And so we began to see that uh, Paul here, the author, presents the superiority of it, and uh, you see verses 1 and through three is where we've been kind of focusing in on here. Uh, it kind of recaps for us Genesis chapter 14, that story of uh, the interaction there between Melchizedek and Abraham. We saw, first of all, the extent uh, of the priesthood, and we saw that within Judaism. It was strictly national and uh, very much um, Jewish only, to whom they ministered, for whom they ministered, and uh, very uh, important for the comparison's sake here, Melchizedek representing Christ's ministry to the entire world. And we made this statement, the significance of the points uh, of, the, of this point is that Jesus Christ, who is after the order of Melchizedek, not simply Messiah and priest of Israel, but of the whole world. And uh, that was the application we came to, the understanding and the comparison and contrast that we saw in these verses here. And an important one uh, for a Jewish reader especially, but for each of us to understand. As we said, for that Jewish reader, there was three points to it. Uh, he had to acknowledge from his own scriptures the existence of a priesthood completely separated from the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. He had to admit that it existed long before the Jewish priesthood and that the father of the nation both recognized and submitted. We'll see that more in detail tonight as the author here really digs into it and my goodness makes a powerful point we'll see tonight and a pretty exciting part of the passage we get to okay the second one was the royal nature of the priesthood the old testament realm we saw that it was obviously uh separation between the throne and the altar the the king and the priest was it was clear and distinct Yet in Melchizedek, those two offices were combined, and we said that uh, we saw that as a beautiful picture of Christ's priesthood, his lordship united in one person, and so very much Melchizedek, that type in that way, in uniting those offices as Christ will do uh, and has done already. We saw next the permanency of the um, righteousness and the peace of the priesthood that bring Melchizedek. We talked about that name coming from two words, one meaning king and ruler, the other one meaning righteous and just, and uh, the embodiment of that really, and even his title and name as Christ will be, as we saw, we saw that that term Salem uh, comes from a root of shalom, peace, as we know it well too, and uh, the reality of these two descriptions of Melchizedek obviously foreshadow Jesus Christ, great picture just in the name in the terminology here we said that first of all it pictures what christ can do alone what he alone can do spiritually and uh, we uh, identify the reality that the priests of old they failed in making men righteous and also giving men peace specifically with god and the priesthood could never do that of old the priests were never able to do that and yet jesus christ could i love that verse romans chapter 5 and verse uh, 1 there that christ justified us and, and justifying us he 
made us at peace with God. And uh, he provided the opportunity for us to have peace with God. Secondly, it also, we said it pictures that Christ alone, what he can do physically in his future kingdom. Uh, it will be characterized, as we saw there in Isaiah 32.1, characterized by righteousness and peace. We looked at that Psalm chapter 85 and verse 10, that very picturesque verse of those kissing each other. And certainly that is true right now in our salvation, in God's eyes. And it also will be true of uh, Christ's future rule here on earth, his reign and ministry there. And so, uh, and I love that statement and that thought. What every human um, kingdom, what every human rule, what every human government has tried to achieve and has failed utterly, Jesus Christ alone will succeed at. And that's bringing peace. And uh, just reading some, I got an, an article in, in uh, today in the front page of it is about the, uh, the chaos at the temple in Israel and all the different issues going on there and heard today of other things, peace in different areas of the world. There's just lack of it and, and conflict and things. And only Christ is going to bring that. Very important picture there too. And for us personally, that salvation, he came to do what? To exchange our filthy rags for his righteous robe. Yeah, the robe of his righteousness. And when he did that, then we were able to enter into the very presence of God at peace with him, based on what Christ did. It's a beautiful picture there. Now, then we saw, and I think there at the end of our study last week, we saw the personage of Melchizedek. And kind of comparing that, obviously, and you see verse 3 there, verse 5 begins, verily they that are the sons of Levi, speaking of the Levitical priesthood. And so uh, it was very much hereditary. We know that. That was the focus. Genealogy was everything to them and uh, determined everything. And so the priests were obviously much more concerned uh, on the average about their pedigree than they were about their holiness. In other words, their own personal um, qualifications, if you might put it as such. And yet, what we saw in contrast to that, comparatively to the Levitical priesthood, what we saw was that Melchizedek had absolutely no traceable lineage, right? Had no traceable lineage. And uh, there was uh, nothing that, that given about his birth. <laughs> no mother, no father, as it's recorded here. No, no birth, no death. And uh, we saw that picture there. We understood that statement that Melchizedek's lineage and origin was irrelevant to the legitimacy of his priesthood. And uh, that was not to what uh, the author here uh, subscribes or attests the, the proof of uh, his supremacy. That had nothing to do with it. Much the same way, we talk about Jesus Christ. It's a great correlation. Christ's lineage is given to us in Matthew and Luke, but it has nothing to do with his priesthood. We don't see him tied back to the tribe of Levi. We see him tied back to the Davidic throne and Judah, obviously, right? And the line of the Messiah, the promised one. And so that was on purpose. Melchizedek's a perfect picture of that. There's no priesthood lineage given about Melchizedek. We don't know when he was born, who is uh, that line. We don't know that of Christ, or at least we know, uh, well, we do know that he wasn't connected at all, that nothing is given of Christ, because that is not what legitimizes his position as high priest it is the personhood of jesus christ who he is we made the statement as we finished up last time that he was chosen and uh because of who he was okay his personage his personal will uh worth his personal quality is while christ was that perfect lamb of god the son of god uh, the one who alone could pay the penalty for our sins and then we made that last statement that's the picture that melchizedek provides for us with that no recorded genealogy, 
that since his death is not recorded, it's a picture as if he's still serving as priest and king of the Most High God. So that kind of opens the door for our next statement. Look at verse number three. We'll see one more. We'll finish up now with verses one through three, then we'll delve into four and following. It says this, without father, without mother, without descent. We talked about that quite a bit as we finished up the personage there. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God. And here are the next four words, very important. Abideth a priest continually. What we see here is what we would call in term the eternality, the eternality of the priesthood. And again, as the Melchizedek priesthood is a picture of Jesus Christ. So uh, comparatively, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood was quite interesting. There was a definitive or a definite time limit um, on every priest, how long they could serve in that position. Uh, They only served from the time that they were 25 years old until they were 50. It didn't matter how faithful they were. It didn't matter uh, if they still had the ability per se physically to serve. It didn't matter. They would not serve for more than 25 years. The the only caveat to that or exception would be the high priest where you often see them serving until they died and such. But for the, the common Levitical priest, 25 to 50, that's when you served. And that was the time limit on that. In addition, as we think about it, as a whole, the priesthood was very what? Well, it's temporary, okay? And uh, one of the great pictures of Christ dying on the cross uh, of the events, I should say, one of the great pictures of those events uh, is the veil in the temple, right? We, we understand that. And it signified the ending of God's covenant with Moses. It began in the wilderness. We know that well. When God came to Moses, he gave him the law and the Ten Commandments and the other things that was passed on to the nation. Well, when Jesus Christ died and that veil ripped in two from top to bottom, when he gave that final and complete sacrifice and offering, it signified the end of the needed priesthood. That was no longer necessary. That was done. The old covenant, the Old Testament, in the practice of the priesthood, Leviticus was done. There's no need for it anymore because Jesus Christ had made the ultimate sacrifice. We're going to get to that in the next few chapters here because that's one of the huge points that the author brings to. Interestingly, not long after that, historically and practically, guess what happened in AD 70? The temple was destroyed. So God almost took away, in a sense, the opportunity for the Jews to continue to practice that, at least in that presence of the temple and things like that, the sacrifices and such. Many of us who study um, eschatology and things like that, and we talk about the temple and being erected again and the sacrifices that seemingly will be offered there. Um, I remember my dad had an old book, and uh, when I was younger, it really, uh, it really, um, it, it caught my eye, and I remember looking at it and reading it, at least in part, and it was uh, um, the return of the red heifer (laughs) and uh, if you know anything about eschatology and things like that and how they had uh, even I guess decades ago started um, raising red heifers for specific offering there in Israel and things like that it's quite interesting and the preparation for the end times what we read in Revelation of some sacrifices being offered in the temple and the abomination that takes place there and so it's kind of interesting reading all that but the, uh, the point is this God has done away with that Specifically, Jesus Christ has done away with the Levitical priesthood. It was temporary. It was not to carry on. They were not, there is not an expectation of God for them to continue to offer sacrifices. One of the other great um, um, presentations of that and the reality of the end of the dispensation of law, the covenant of law, um, and that Christ has ushered us into the dispensation of grace is the reality of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
And as Jesus Christ told us, Paul records it for us there in that passage as we had the Lord's Supper uh, a couple weeks ago. Okay, We see that reality where he uses this is the New Testament. Okay, the word testament there is another word uh, that, or is a word that is also translated as covenant. And uh, we see the picture here, it's translated covenant actually more times than it is testament and so forth. Christ is saying, this is my blood, okay, this is the New Testament. Uh, It's uh, the old one's done away with, the inferior one, the picture of what this sacrifice is, what Christ did on the cross, what we see when we have the cup, we have the bread here, that picture of what he did on the cross, that is the real thing in that Old Testament, that Old old covenant um, uh, is done away with and uh, not the old testament is what we have part of the canon of scriptures but the old testament the covenant the levitical priesthood and all those things that god worked with with the israelites christ himself said i'm I'm done with that it's finished there's no longer needed it was temporary okay and yet that statement in verse three says what about melchizedek well he is a priest continually no, that, that wasn't, again, I, I don't believe we hear, read that, that he is eternal or Melchizedek lived forever. Now, obviously those who believe he is a theophany would lean towards that. Again, I believe it goes to this verse 3. He had no recorded birth. He has no recorded death. It's seemingly that we don't know any of his lineages, hereditary. And that is the picture here of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is forever. It is eternal. So I, I liken it unto this, okay? Let's test your geography real quick, all right? Okay? Um, what is that? Okay, don't, don't tell me. Tell a neighbor, okay? That way you're not embarrassed if you're wrong, okay? And uh, think if you can name what it is. Think, just tell somebody next to you or tell your own head. Don't, don't tell me out loud now, okay? That is Mount Kilimanjaro, okay? Mount Kilimanjaro. Now, is it really Mount Kilimanjaro? Well, actually, that's not because it would not fit in our church, right? That's a picture of Mount Kilimanjaro. Now, we, we look at that, and the reality is it's very full. It does reveal some things about it. It's very massive, right? And I love the snow peaks and things like that and such, and it dwarfs the land around it, no doubt. But it is not the mountain itself. It is a picture of the mountain. And yet, we get a good idea about Mount Kilimanjaro, okay? Now, uh, if someone offered me, you can have this picture of Mount Kilimanjaro. You could go visit Mount Kilimanjaro. I'll tell you, I'll go visit Mount Kilimanjaro. I like hiking. I like climbing stuff. And so I think that would be fun. And if they go slow and I could breathe, okay? And uh, that'd be great, okay? I'll take the real thing over the picture anytime because the picture is not the real thing. Hence, Melchizedek, the same way. As we've talked about this type that is a picture, the Old Testament type that is a picture of the real thing, Melchizedek, it isn't saying he lived forever. It's picturing his priesthood seemingly having no end, and so the priesthood of Jesus Christ has no end. It is a forever priesthood, if we could put it that way. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? Okay, so I hope you don't mind. We're going to skip ahead just a little bit. I'm not one of those people that likes reading the end of a book, okay? But we are going to skip ahead in the passage, read a couple verses, and it will kind of shine some light on why this is so crucial. Why does he say here he is a priest priest continually? Look with me at the same chapter. We'll look ahead, jump ahead to verses 24 and 25. Notice what it says in the passage, okay? But this man, and that's speaking of Jesus Christ after the order of Melchizedek, because he, notice the same statement, okay, it mirrors what we've just read here in verse 3 a lot, continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. You can almost read in that unending. It's unchangeable. Uh, We know that that word means it's not going to change. There's no shadow of turning there, okay? Verse 25, 
Wherefore, okay, now we also know the word wherefore is like therefore. They're kind of the same word and so forth, okay? So therefore, wherefore, he is able. He is capable. He has the ability, okay? I, I don't know what it is, but my, uh, I, I, I always catch young people saying, can I do this? And I always say, I don't know if you can, but if you're asking for permission, you can do that. Okay, he said, you know, can I do that? Well, that's speaking to ability, okay? Can I do that? Now, can I jump over this church building? No, I can't. I don't have the ability, okay? What is this is saying is the same thing. It is ability. It's not permission. It's not uh, anything other than the ability. What does Christ have? Well, he's unchanging in his priesthood. He is forever. He has an eternal priesthood. And what's the ability spoken of here? Wherefore, he is able also to... Save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he, what, ever liveth to make intercession for them. And I like just the beginning of verse 26, for such a high priest. For such a high priest. Now, I don't know about you, and I've said it before. I, I am so grateful, as that verse puts it, I think I've said it in a Sunday morning message. I am thankful I am saved to the uttermost, aren't you? See, the connection is saved to the uttermost. Why? Okay? Nothing's going to unsave me. And there's not going to re- be a point where you and I reach the end of the grace of God. We're like, uh-oh, you've exceeded your warranty. Don't you love it when appliance or a car breaks down and you've, you call about the warranty? Oh, I'm sorry, it went out last month. Isn't that a blessing? Okay, that'll never happen with your salvation. You are saved to the uttermost, to the nth degree. You are saved eternally forever. And how can he say that? Because you have a high priest that is eternal unchanging his sacrifice goes on and on and on he can save you to the uttermost because you and i have a most amazing eternal high priest it's quite the comparison that we see again he's laying the groundwork here in the beginning of chapter seven for the things that he'll say in the end of chapter seven chapter eight and so forth uh, in this passage but i sure am thankful that you and i are saved to the uttermost all based upon the reality of an eternal high priest who still ministers for us, who is able to save us. Let me ask you this. Was the priest or were the priests of the Old Testament able to save people to the uttermost? (laughs) They weren't able to save them, and they certainly weren't able to save them to the uttermost. Only Jesus Christ could. And that is the point of this. Why does he say he's a priest continue? Because he's still working on our behalf, but his ability to save is forever. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are saved once and saved forever based upon him and who he is as our high priest. The priests of old, they were limited, right, in their time of service. 25 years or if they are a high priest, it ended with death and the entirety of the Levitical priesthood was temporary. It was done away with by that New Testament that Christ established. Yet Christ's priesthood uh, is eternal knowing no limits of time or validity. Okay, there, there's no limit to his legitimizing it or whatever you want to put it. It's still valid, okay? Um, I, I, I hate throwing stuff away. Most of you are probably like that too, okay? I wasn't in the generation that went through the uh, um, <laughs> times of depression and things like that who kept everything, it seemed like. And uh, I'm not like that, but I hate throwing anything away. So I am not above eating stuff that went out of date, amen? Okay, I'll just go ahead and eat it, all right? I mean, I, I'll take six months, year, I'll do it. Okay, I ate something the other day that was two years old. Why? Because I did not want to waste it and throw it away. And, and, and there's always a prayer that goes along with it. Lord, help me not to get sick. Amen. 
Okay, so because I don't like to waste it, man. When it reaches the validate, a goodbye, and like I, I hate, I hate it when we come across that. And say, oh, it's still good. You ever say that? Oh, it's still good, and then you're tasting like this is the worst thing ever. Uh, <laughs> sometimes that happens, right? So a valid by date, right? That's that's what we're talking about here. There is not a valid good until date with Christ and who He is and all that He's done. It is good forever. It is good forever. There's no uh, limitation on validity. That's what we mean by this statement here. There's no goodbye date, okay? Um, but I'm sure and thankful that many of us who've been saved in decades gone by, uh, you think about it, some of you have been saved half a century ago. Isn't that amazing to think about? Some of us, we've been saved three or four decades ago. Isn't it good news that if someone trusts the Lord at the Wild Game Dinner this year, he can still save them? He's still able. What he did on the cross of Calvary is still in date. It's still valid. There is no limit to it. There is not a a full capacity in heaven. He's still in the saving business. And that's all tied to his eternality as our priest and what he did, not only offer himself as a sacrifice, but also now his interceding on our behalf as that passage there that we just read alludes to. It's a great truth and a great encouragement and a great proof of his great superiority to any offering or sacrifice the Jewish priesthood could offer. Now, there's another proof or evidence, and this is the one that takes up the bulk of the first part of chapter 7 here. But we are not going to spend a ton of time on it because it's pretty just uh, straightforward. But it's also a powerful one. I love this statement, okay? Look at letter F, if you will, there on your outline. Um, The recognize, this is the last, and we did six instead of five, as we said at the beginning. But, okay, let me back up here. There's that one, or not back up. Let me go forward. They recognized uh, the recognized authority of the priesthood. The recognized authority of the priesthood. Look at verse number four, okay? Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils, okay? Immediately reading that, the, the, the verbiage, the wording, where he calls this man great would catch people's attention, right? And he alludes to this authority that was given him, and it was an authority, what? Recognized by their most famous patriarch, Abraham. So the author is doing something on purpose here. He's using the story of Abraham because that was probably the most influential patriarch, certainly the father, the one who they refer to often as father. Uh, It was a big deal. And so that is why you see him, um, again, subscribing to or appealing to the story of Abraham in that Abraham recognized this authority. So how was it recognized? Well, he gives us three ways in which it was recognized. The first is this, and like I said, we're going to kind of go through this quickly. First, Abraham tithed of the spoils of his mini war. Remember when he went to rescue Lot uh, to Melchizedek, as he would tithe to God, recognizing him as the priest of the Most High God. Okay, So Abraham tithed of the spoils. We read that here. Verse 4 speaks of that too. Obviously, he gave the tenth of the spoils. That's kind of interesting. We'll talk about that here in a moment here too. Um, But uh, he tithed of the spoils to Melchizedek just as he would tithe to God. It comes obviously from Genesis chapter 14 and verse 20. We read this, and he gave him tithes of all. In his interaction, Abraham's with Melchizedek. It's a very important um, point that we want to consider for a moment. Um, it reemphasizes how Abraham submits to Melchizedek. He, he puts himself under. That's huge in, in, in Jewish lore that Abraham, because he was the top echelon. I mean, you talk about the, the, the head honcho of the Jewish faith, Abraham. And now, now all of a sudden they're confronted with, wait a second, Abraham, he submitted himself, he put himself under someone else. That would get the Jews' attention. 
that would challenge them in their thinking to discredit the order of Melchizedek and thereby discredit the order of Jesus Christ. So understand, what do we know about the Jews and Jesus Christ? They didn't want to have anything to do with him. They called him a, a, a liar, a false prophet. They called him all kinds of things. They did not want to accept that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior. Therefore, if they could delegitimize uh, his, uh, where he's connected to this order of Melchizedek, then in, essentially in their minds they have discredited him and uh, he, it's not worth even considering. The author here is saying, wait a second. You want to dismiss this order of Melchizedek from whom uh, Jesus Christ comes and has his legitimacy as a high priest? What about this? What about when Abraham submitted himself? He gave tithes to him. And it's a great picture and understanding here that really would have challenged them about their thinking about this order of Melchizedek. Okay? This was long before the Levitical priesthood was on the scene. And Melchizedek accepted the tithe. Now that's an important statement. We read through this, we may not think of a big deal, but that's a pretty big deal that he accepted the tithes. It really put him on at least equal standing uh, with any Levitical priest who would later receive tithes. Look at verse number uh, 5. Look, he continues the thought. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law that is of their brethren, though they come, um, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. Verse 6 is the first verse. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham. So you see what he's saying here. Listen, he's the same as the Levitical priest that received the tithes. And God seems to accept that, shines shines his face on that. God has no problem with it that he did so. It legitimizes who Melchizedek is because here's Abraham submitting, putting himself under, and giving tithes to Melchizedek. Now, they would know, as you and I know, that God takes the priesthood seriously. If anyone tried to take upon themselves the responsibility or the privilege of the priesthood without God's permission, God dealt out consequences. We've seen that in Korah and other situations, Uzziah and such. God takes that seriously. So you don't, uh, you don't do something like that without paying the consequences if you do not have God's hand of blessing upon you. But that's exactly what Melchizedek does. Uh, he uh, takes the tithes from um, uh, Abraham. And the priests were the only ones commanded and permitted to take tithes of the people of Israel within God's law. And as Melchizedek does that, it's obvious that God approves of it, as did Abraham. It's some great evidence, powerful evidence of the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek connected to Jesus Christ. Now, what I also find interesting is, as you have probably seen, we see that tithing is in vogue. Tithing is practiced 400 years before God tells the Israelites to tithe. <laughs> and uh, it, it's being practiced. Uh, Abraham's doing it to Melchizedek, and uh, he's, he's giving tithes to God through the, the priest. Melchizedek there too. Okay? I also find it interesting that Paul, led of the Holy Spirit here, says it was a tenth of the spoils. A lot of time we want to connect that to Jewish law and so forth, and, and yet Paul is writing in retrospect, and he's saying, listen, twice in fact, if you look back up, I believe it's verse number uh, um, one, he also says it, okay, that it was a, or, or verse number two, excuse me, verse number two, that it was a tenth, 
Right? He gave a tenth of the spoils. He gave the tenth of all. And it's, a, it's a great picture about the idea of, a, um, uh, of giving tithe, giving a tenth. In fact, the word there, when he says of the spoils, it literally means off the, the top of the heap is what the Greek word in its basic meaning means. And so getting it off the top, giving it first to God. And I would also put it this way. You know, in, in passage-wise, Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham came back, the, the kings came out to meet him, the king of Sodom and others, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, came here and meets him first. He gives him tithes, and then it's interesting, chronologically, what happens. He meets Melchizedek first. He gives him the tithe first, and then he goes to the king of Sodom and returns things there and, and gives him what belongs to him and the spoils and things like that. Quite interesting. What do we derive from that? Well, we would say, make this statement uh, that um, kind of sums it all up. It was the first thing that Abraham did with that which he had recovered and taken when he rescued Lot, and it was also freely given. You see in that passage that, that Abraham freely gave. Okay? I love what Paul says. Basically, Paul says what? Paul, uh, God loves a cheerful giver, one who gives freely, willingly. Okay? And uh, God would have us to do that. I, Abraham's a great picture of that. He tithes. He gives 10%. And he does it willingly. He does it freely. And uh, he does it first. A lot, of, a lot of good truths out of that. It wasn't out of a legal requirement. There wasn't a law before the law <laughs> that told Moses, you have to do this. No. Uh, say Moses, excuse me. Abraham gave it freely. Abraham gave it willingly before that was even a law to the nation of Israel. And we can learn much about that for you and I. Challenge us to regularly tithe. Uh, a great example outside of and before the law of Moses. Okay? Secondly, there's also an interesting part here too about this that legitimizes or shows this authority that Melchizedek had. Not only the fact that Abraham tithed to him, but secondly, Melchizedek blesses um, uh, Abraham. Okay? Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. It's repeated a couple times here. And uh, in fact, look at verse 6. We'll read that statement here, the end of it. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Uh, verse number 1 speaks of that. It says, and blessed him at the end of verse number 1. It's alluding to and a reflection upon Genesis chapter 14, verses 19 through the first part of 20. And he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abraham of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. Okay? Now, you and I would say, okay, so what's the big deal about a blessing? Well, let's think about it from a Jewish perspective. A blessing was huge. Okay? A blessing was a big deal. From the birthright uh, to other blessings that God would give, certainly to the blessings that God had already bestowed upon Abraham, starting with Genesis chapter 12, blessings were a big deal to the Jews. And that wasn't something to be uh, sneezed at. That wasn't something to be looked down upon when blessings were given. In fact, we know that one of the promises that God gave Abraham was what? All the world, all the nations of the world would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. And so uh, blessings are a huge deal. As Abraham was a receiver of those blessings, the promises of God, um, and, and that's even what this passage says here. I, I find that interesting and of note. He says here, the end of verse 6, and blessed him that had the promises. Blessed him that had the promises. So uh, Abraham was here. He received the promises of God. He was blessed of God, and yet Melchizedek comes along, and he is the one that gives blessing upon Abraham. You see, Abraham was the receiver of those promises, the blessing, and here he is receiving a blessing from Melchizedek. So what's the significance of that? Why, why is that so important? Some of you are looking at me like, what's the big deal of that? What's the point? 
Well, he explains it. Look at verse number 7. Look down in the passage. Look at verse number 7. Notice the statement. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Okay? So that, that word without contradiction. In other words, this always holds true. This is indisputable. Okay? The less is blessed by the greater. Now, that's a powerful statement right here because he just made a, he just said, Abraham's here, Melchizedek's here. The less is blessed of the better. So we would make this statement, okay? The, uh, the blesser um, uh, is indisputably greater than the blessing recipient is what the verse is telling us. The blesser is indisputably greater than the blessing recipient. I wanted to use the word blessy, but I don't think that's a word. Okay, the blesser is better than the blessee and the one receiving it. And I, I tried it and word corrected it. But anyway, so notice the statement, the point. Okay, the blesser is greater than, it, 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 he, again, the, is greater, it's more than. Uh, the blesser is more than, greater than the blessee, the person receiving it. Okay? There's a superiority attached to the one giving the blessing, while the one receiving it is notably what? Inferior. What's the term used here? Verse number seven, less. They're less. Now, he's applying it to Melchizedek. It's not a knock against Abraham, but rather a nod to the authority of Melchizedek. Okay? It's literally speaking to the personage of Melchizedek as we talked about. He may have lacked lineage. He, he may not have the hereditary validity that the Jews would seek, but here's a person that even our father Abraham submitted to. Here's a person that Abraham tied to, and Abraham was blessed of. You have to be in a position of superiority in order to bless somebody, is what verse 7 says. In order to be the blessee, the person receiving it, the blesser has to have a greater capability to bless you. That's the point. And so it's putting Melchizedek up here above Abraham who received the blessing. It's a great logical appeal, an argument from superiority, the obvious. They can't deny, okay, well, that didn't happen. It was in their history books. It was something the Jews knew well. They understood the story. So you can't argue it didn't happen. So he's appealing to this story that they would have been familiar with and said, whoa, whoa, Abraham submitted himself. He tithed to him. He received a blessing from the hand of Melchizedek. So literally, they would have to come face-to-face with the reality that his, Melchizedek's, personal qualification for being a priest, superior priest, every Levitical priest, uh, was found in this interaction between them. He was chosen by God to bless Abraham doing so. He was greater than Abraham and anything that came from Abraham. We'll see that here in a moment, how that point is made. Okay? But there's one other thing that we read about Melchizedek that supports something we've already seen. Look at verse number 8. Let's look at that quickly. And here, men that die receive tithes. Speaking of the earthly priest, the priest of the Levitical priesthood. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. Again, you know, under that Levitical law, men paid tithes unto the, the priests, those of Levi. And those are all men who died. They, they had a, an ending. They were temporary. Okay? Here the picture again is Abraham is paying tithes to the one who has no record of death, has no record of being born. Um, A type, in that type he lives on with no death recorded for Melchizedek. Again, another picture of the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ and its superiority to the priesthood of Aaron. It is no longer valid. 
the Levitical priesthood is done away with. The New Testament has done away with all that was under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament in that sense. Superior. And so the author then goes on and he ends this portion with a very shocking statement. <laughs> it is a powerful, shocking statement that he makes here that would have really um, made infuriated uh, made mad some of the Jewish readers of it, and it's in the next two verses. What is that? Well, let me give you the statement, then we'll read those verses. It's this. Thirdly, Levi and his descendant priest tied the Melchizedek in Abraham. Okay, so this is quite an interesting statement. Look at verse number 9 and verse 10, okay? And as I may so say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Well, how did he do that? For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, that's an that's a interesting statement. You're like, well, well it's kind of different, you know, but saying he's still in the loins, he's still there, part of Abraham, Levi is, who is the head of the Levitical priesthood, and that's really the thing here, okay? Now, we understand, um, uh, as this is a powerful poignant statement, okay, that it, it would have been sufficient just to point out Abraham's own submission and recognition of the authority of Melchizedek. Yet, the Holy Spirit points out here that as Abraham did that, every Levite, including Levi himself, that flowed from Abraham's loins in the generations to come were right there with Abraham. Now, you and I might look at that and we'll say, well, that's a, you know, that's a little odd. Well, let's look at it again from a Jewish perspective. Remember, the priority and the focus the Jews put on lineage and heritage and the connection to family. One of the things that uh, historically we can attach to the Israelites is what is called um, racial solidarity. Racial solidarity, and this is a great passage. Uh, example of it, a passage exemplifying it, okay? What do we mean by racial solidarity? It's an identification with the entire nation as a whole as individuals. In other words, as we see here, okay, the passage is saying what? That this paying of tithes to Melchizedek by Abraham, it involved the entire nation, the entire Levitical priesthood, all the unborn generations from the loins of Abraham, as it says here, okay? And though the Levites would receive tithes in uh, the centuries to come, they too were paying tithes themselves to Melchizedek in Abraham. Again, this is a foreign concept to you and I. We're not Jewish. We don't see the connection, okay? The only thing I can liken it to is sometimes we, we think of as an American or a Michigander. Uh, we, we have a connection to the whole and, and such. But this goes well beyond that, okay? Now think with me real quick, and this kind of adds perspective for you and I. Think about the Jews and how they viewed and referred to even Abraham and the other patriarchs. Like no other nation in any other group, they have held their patriarchs in the highest of regards. They have literally identified with them in everything. In fact, I, I made this statement here, and, and think about the terminology. They identified with and in Abraham in everything. So when you were mentioning Abraham, the typical Jew, and especially in Paul's day, was like, yeah, that, that, that was us. I, I was there with Abraham. Well, how are you there? Because I'm a Jew. And that was a promise to the Jews. And so we think of it in terms of just that. When a Jew would refer to the promises that God gave Abraham, they would often say, well, yeah, those were the promises we received. Okay? And uh, for instance, okay, this is a terrible illustration, but uh, I'll give it. Okay? 
Um, let, let's say the Univers- University of Michigan goes on to win the national basketball um, uh, uh, tournament this year. Okay, they're the champion, and uh, yeah, some of you shake your heads. Yeah, we know that's not going to happen, but let's just say it happens. Okay, and uh, they go on and they win. Okay, the NCAA championship. You know what fans will say? Who won? We won, right? Somebody say, "Hey, we won!" And you and I both know a fan never st- st- took a step on that court. It's an identification with that, right? It's like, hey, we won. What did you do for nothing? <laughs> I watched it. That was about it. You didn't do anything, right? Okay, so the Jews were very much like that with Abraham and the other patriarchs. And again, the promises weren't just for Abraham. Those were promises, our promises. In fact, it's interesting. It's terminology. We are God's chosen people. It wasn't just Abraham and those generations before them. No, no, we are God's chosen people, things they'll even say today. Jehovah wasn't Abraham's covenant God. He was our covenant God, their covenant God. So you see this identification with and in Abraham that they embrace greatly. It's a mindset that is present. It is why they would commonly refer to Abraham as Father Abraham. Even Christ said, your father Abraham, and they said, our father Abraham. Now listen, how many generations, those Pharisees and those Sadducees and others that Christ talked to, how many generations were they removed from Abraham? Far enough where you wouldn't call him your father. You think about it here in America. That's all of us calling every single founding father our father, our father, our father. Okay, like we call them in some sense. But this is a greater, Father Abraham. Why? It's an identification with, a close identification with Abraham down through the ages as a nation. It's a mindset that they used often and showed. They all saw themselves in Abraham inseparably connected and connected with him in everything, claiming everything that was his as theirs as a nation. They were in him, the promised land. This is our promised land. Even today, the fight is on for what? Our promised land, what God promised us. So there's this great identification with Abraham. Now, Paul's saying, okay, let's make another application of that. If you're in Abraham, with Abraham, you're identifying with everything, the reality is this, you too, in just the same way as those promises of the land and special blessings from God were for you today, you also have to acknowledge that you share in this moment when Abraham submitted in his tithes and to receive a blessing from a different priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. And he says, Levi was there. The head of this priesthood, he, he was there. And that's a powerful picture. Therefore, the statement is this. One cannot argue that the Levitical priesthood was far superior to that priesthood, which in the form of Abraham, the entirety of the Jewish nation and Levitical priesthood submitted to and gave tithes to at that time. Again, a poignant and powerful point. He's saying, listen, you were there. If you claim to be in Abraham and with everything, which they did, and he said, listen, everyone that flowed from his loins were there. You tithed. You received a blessing. You submitted to the authority of Melchizedek. It was something they wouldn't be able to argue with. I call it in a very uh, theological way. I call it a what? A gotcha moment. That's not really theological, but anyway. It's a gotcha moment, right? It's a, when he's saying, hey, gotcha. 
Remember how much you like to identify with and, and, and Abraham and you were there for the promises. You're there for the promised land. You're also there when you submitted to this priesthood that you want to say doesn't exist, that has no authority, is not superior in any way. The statement here is the uh, superseding authority and superior of the priesthood had to be recognized based upon the evidence and the proof given. It's foundation. Oh, it, it's groundwork establishing for the truths that he's about to uh, speak of Jesus Christ. Okay? It starts with an understanding of the superiority of the order of Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Look at verse number 15, and I'm done. Notice it. Notice the statement here. And it is yet far more evident. For that after the, see the next word? Similitude. Similarities. The picture of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. Everything you and I have studied for these past several weeks is laying groundwork and foundation for you and I to get to that verse and the verses surrounding and say, wait a second, here's what God wanted to establish. Here's this order of Melchizedek that is superior, far superior to the Levitical priesthood. And as it says there, I like it. It's evident. The evidence speaks for itself. You can't miss it that there's a priest who now comes from this order that is far superior. Christ's priesthood is much greater and superior than any priesthood any human priest could ever offer. So you and I, studying these passages and these verses, have now laid a groundwork for moving ahead and seeing Christ in his priesthood, which we'll get into next week. Brother John, you're bringing those prayer requests and uh, reminds you to 